I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 42 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is drummer Linda Pittman, who brings her abundance of power, groove, and talent to the Baseball Project, Filthy Friends, and other bands. These are supergroups. The Baseball Project is led by Scott McCoy of Young Fresh Fellows and the Minus Five, and Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate and a robust solo career. Also in the band are Peter Buck and Mike Mills of R.E.M., with whom McCoy played for years. provides the motor. Filthy Friends finds Pittman drumming with Buck and McCoy again, plus Corin Tucker of Slater King. But back to the baseball project. There is something incredibly cool about seeing these awesome musicians playing in clubs and singing original songs about baseball. We all know the story of what Doc Ellis did. The Baseball Project recently finished recording its fourth album, its first since 2014, with producer Mitch Easter at his North Carolina studio. Yes, that marked a reunion among Buck and Mills and Easter, who produced R.E.M.'s first albums. The Baseball Project is a passion project, and Pittman tells of the band's dynamics and why they're so happy doing what they're doing. I don't think she was too keen on the album title I suggested, though. When Linda Pittman was a kid in Minneapolis, she loved baseball and drumming. Which came first? What song made her lose her ever-loving mind, as she put it, and inspired her to bang on pans and Tupperware to recreate the drum fills? Who were the drummers she idolized? How old was she when she got her first drum kit? And what happened when she joined a band before she actually knew how to play it? Pittman also tells of working at a so-called hippie cafe in Minneapolis with future Jayhawk Mark Olson and the two women who would become her bandmates in Zuzu's Pedals. record deal and much touring followed for that excellently named band, but eventually she decided to leave it in Minneapolis behind and to move to New York City without her drums. Time for a new life. But her reputation as a drummer preceded her, and when she met Steve Wynn, they forged a musical and personal connection. They've been together since 1996, and she spoke with me from their Queen's home. How do they pull off playing and being married to each other for so long? Given the rock world's reputation as a boys club, particularly among drummers, how does she avoid being disrespected or worse? Hint, listen to her play. Pittman is a blast when she's playing her drums. She's also a perceptive storyteller and intensely curious person. When the Baseball Project first played in Chicago, I gave Linda Pittman and Steve Wynn a tour of the Chicago Tribune, where I worked, because they were staying close by and were interested. I thought it was pretty cool that I got to take them around Trib Tower while the newspaper was still there. Please sit back and enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Linda Pittman. Growing up, which were you into first, drumming or baseball? Um, I guess baseball. Yeah, but 
both from a very young age. So I, yeah, I mean, I don't twins fan. Yes. A hundred percent all the way. Yeah. Okay, you grew up in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis. That is true. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, my youth was really centered around sports. My entire neighborhood of kids and there were just droves of us. There was really only one other girl in the neighborhood and uh, she moved away when I was probably eight or nine or something. So it was really me and the boys and it, we were all very sporty. So, you know, I had a love of all sports. We just would take turns going from baseball to, okay, let's now let's do a pickup basketball game. Okay. Now we're going to get a football game going in that yard. I mean, we were really, really like incredibly active kids. So, um, and then I got into, um, organized sports early on and was playing soccer in that like first wave of soccer that hit the u.s in the 70s um so i was i was playing that from like i don't know age eight on or whatever um so it was it was very much sports life that i had growing up um but then also i did get into music early on in a um I, I took piano lessons. My girlfriend was took piano lessons and I got very interested and mom, mom signed me up for that, which was great. But then I had always had a really extreme interest in drums ever since I was maybe four or something like that. Uh, my, my older brother and sister had Elvis 45s in their little 45 case. And I can remember the first time I heard Hound Dog and wow. just kind of kind of lost my little ever loving mind and immediately started making, uh, you know, the typical thing, putting together Tupperware and coffee cans and all that and making my own little little drum set in my room and I would just spin that song over and over and over and try to get that drum fill in. Wow. Um, well, and that was, and that was not like new music at the time you were growing up. Like you're not that old. It's, it's like you would have been, so that was, that was sort of, they had these old 45s and you're just like, Oh, I love the sound of that. Yeah, this was like 1970. So it isn't that, you know, it isn't, it, it's not like it was, ancient history but it probably seemed like it at the time you know what i mean um yeah i was always like into Beatles stuff and i was you know that was pretty much before my time if, at right. least to be conscious but but some you just sort of you latch on to the music that you love you don't think well what year was this from right especially kids nowadays or, or anybody who's like just going down a, a, a you know a k-hole on youtube or you know spotify or pandora whatever you Nowadays, people who are discovering music for the first time, they don't know what year it is. They, they don't even see pictures of the people. They have no clue. They're just things are being thrown at them, you know, um, or it's easy to just go and discover things. You know, you don't know what year 
And, and right. it's really fun to listen to like friends, kids who say like, oh yeah, I'm super into like Buffalo Springfield. This song's amazing. You know what I mean? And they don't even know if it was made yesterday or, you know, 50 years ago. Um, so that's pretty, that's, that's pretty fortunate for them. We all had to, you know, <laughs> search it all out painstakingly by going through the, uh, yeah, though there was something in the search that also rewarded you. Like, I remember I would look at the Rolling Stone record guide and I'd be like, oh, what's this band, Velvet Underground, that has all these five-star records? And, you know, you find, like, the third Velvet Underground record and you're like, oh, this is, like, really pretty. Or, you know, like, who is this Procol Harum that has these, you know, you get, like, Salty Dog and, and like, like, Gary Brooker, he sounds, like, different from other people. But, you know, and sometimes you get stuff that was, like, you didn't like, but you could sort of find it for, like, $2 at Secondhand Tunes or something like that. And then be like, oh. It's, you know, this is oh, like yeah. my discovery, my discovery as opposed to now, which is fantastic is that you just go on YouTube or Apple music or whatever and find everything, but there's sort of less weight on each choice you're making. Oh, I'll say, I mean, yeah, those, those were, you know, the searches for your Holy grail, you know, I can remember searching for, you know, like a Mike Heron record in college that I was super into um, a lot of British folk. Wow. Yeah. And stuff. So I was a big, uh, incredible string band fan and just, you know, going through the stacks and hoping that you would, cause these things were so long gone, so far out of print and not likely to be reprinted or repressed. Um, turns out, <laughs> turns out I was wrong. Eventually they would be, but I didn't want to wait 30 years for, um, but yeah, I can remember like, finally finding this Mike Heron record I was looking for. And then of course the being the dope that I am left it on the, uh, the dashboard of my car. While no. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Completely melted it. Yeah. But so the search continues. Um, oh, there you go. Well, now you have discogs, so you can see how bad the damage yeah, is. Exactly. Um, so as you were growing up and you're listening to all this music, were there drummers who you thought, Oh, I want to be like that. You know, not when I was that young, when I was that, when I was like in grade school. So I, I started playing drums in, in grade school as soon as I could, as soon as they made it available to us, school band, I started doing it and just, you know, I was more about, I would listen to records on the radio, love them, be all excited about it, but I couldn't even really comprehend playing a drum set. Or, or, you know, I was just enjoying the songs, you know what I mean? Um, at school, I was learning how to read music, play band and orchestra style stuff. So they were like two separate things to me in my enjoyment and in my head. It wasn't until I was in sort of like junior high and then into high school that like where I had friends who were in band with me who actually had drum sets at home. Um, and so I would go over to their house and just sit there and watch them, you know, and salivate and be like, wow, there's just no way. I mean, this is, this seems so beyond me. And yet it's gotta be doable. These guys aren't that much better than me in band. In fact, <laughs> maybe they're not better than me at all. You know what I mean? Like it's gotta be possible, but um, it was just, trying to figure out how to start. So um, once I did finally get a chance to 
start working things out. Then I started listening to music more with the idea of like, oh, now I'm really concentrating on the drummer and trying to figure out how they do that. Um, and so this is more like in college and things like that. Um, uh, yes, there were. There were drummers. I, I gravitated a lot toward uh, British R&B bands. So I was super into like the pretty things and the small faces right. and, um, you know, and the who. And um, so a lot of modern British R&B stuff. So, yeah, I was listening to, um, you know, I loved Kenny Jones, still just adore Kenny Jones and Mickey Waller, too. And of course, Keith Moon. But then I was also listening to, you know, Zeppelin and my appreciation for Bonham has grown. I always was amazed by him, but it that's somebody who you can just never tire of listening to and picking apart just because it feels like, well, I kind of know because uh, I've had the opportunity to play with John Paul Jones. Um, and I've heard story, you know, he's told me stories about, you know, I love that he calls him Bonzo too. It cracks me up, but he's like, yeah, Bonzo and I would, um, you know, really work this stuff out. I mean, intricately and you can tell, I mean, it, it has to be worked out when you hear the things that they're doing in unison, the moves that they're making. And um, so that's all super well thought out as opposed to, somebody like a wild man like Keith Moon, right? Um, right. Who I can listen to endlessly as well. Um, you know, uh, just two incredibly different points of view and approaches. Yeah, there was Bonham. I, I, I early on, I thought, oh, this is a really loud player. And then later I thought, oh, this is like a really kind of groovy player, like, like sort of the, the way he sort of kept the beat and sort of was in the pocket. And there was something, there's something a lot of my favorite drummers are the ones where they're just sort of playing a steady beat, but it's makes you want to move and you're not quite sure why. And I think he's sort of like that. Yeah. But yeah. loud. But, but, but incredibly <laughs> loud. Yeah. Yeah. And he's always, you know, throwing in, he's just his idea of, I mean, just the way he turns beats around that always just cracks me up. It's never where you expect it to be. And yet it feels perfectly in place, which is kind of what I um, really strive for. You know, I mean, it has to be appropriate to the music. So it has to be appropriate to the song and the songwriter. You know, that's got to be first and foremost. So it's not like every drummer is going to get the opportunity to show off their Bonzo chops, you know, or their Keith Moon chops, because if it's not appropriate to the song, then that would sound ridiculous. So, you know, first and foremost, I think about the song I'm playing. And then secondly, I can take the things I like about what other players do and say, oh, is there a way to apply that? in this song somewhere, even if it's in one little spot, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, but that, that's how music is. That's how a guitar player I'm sure does things as well. You know, you're just taking the lessons you learn and you just put them in the big, you know, jumbler and then you spin it around and you pull things out when, you know, 
when you need them or when you want them. And well, that idea of you liking the first take, it's because when you're playing, you have so much sort of knowledge and instinct and everything else. And you're trusting your instinct to kind of come up with stuff spontaneously that's going to be creative and either it'll work or it won't. But if it does work, it's like that first genuine instinct. And then if it doesn't work, then you can sort of study the parts a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, exactly. You know, you want to have all the years I spent listening to records, working in record stores, being a radio DJ, just, you know, everything centered around music by the time I was in high school and college. I I think that, um, you know, that complete immersion, uh, it it just was filling up. But that's what artists do is you you sort of fill yourself up with all the things that other people have done um and you can get inspiration from multi uh you know you can be a visual artist and get inspiration from a musician and vice versa and from authors you know steve and scott um peter and mike all big readers um they've gained lots of inspiration for their songwriting um, from, you know, uh, authors. So, uh, so you're just filling yourself up during those years and, and hopefully there comes a time when, you know, you can start put just pulling from it and putting, putting back out into the world, you know, right. What was it? What was the first uh, drum kit you got? Um, Oh, this is, yeah. I started begging for a kit when I was eight course did not that that was not happening. Um, (laughs) my poor parents would never have survived that. Um, uh, so, and my mom does apologize. Oh, I probably should have gotten that for you, but you know, there was just so much going on. And I said, you know what? I probably would have, you know, gotten tired of it or something at a certain point. And maybe, you know, maybe it was that quest that I was right. on forever that kept driving me, you know? Um, so I got it, uh, when I was to probably like 20, 21, something like that. Um, and a friend of mine who is an excellent drummer, um, in a local band called the fun seekers, he was moving on to join another band, the 27 various, another great local band in Minneapolis. And he was moving on up, buying a new kit and, um, you know, uh, interestingly that band, the fun seekers that he was leaving, they asked if I wanted to take over for him. And I said, you do realize I've never really played a drum kit. I don't, play (laughs) and they said no we saw you at a party messing around we think you can do it so i ended up buying jed's drum kit and taking over his spot in in his band fun seeker so um uh i didn't last very long because as it turns out i really didn't know to i mean i I got through probably four or five shows with them I, i limped through it i managed it um but it wasn't, wasn't easy. And I, uh, I was, uh, yeah, not, not asked back for the, for the sixth show, shall we say. So you kept, you kept the kit though. I kept the kit. It ended up, 
kind of collecting dust in my parents' basement for a little while while I was licking my wounds about being unceremoniously dumped from my favorite local band. Um, but I kind of knew, you know, like uh, something, if I'm going to do this, like I got to figure it out. I got to, I got to, you know, figure this out, spend the time, rehearse, be in a baby band, you know? So I ended up, I ended up getting dragged out of, you know, early retirement by some, some, you know, much smaller bands. And, but that allowed me to spend the time in the basement with other people who were, you know, more on the beginner end of things and, and, and just develop our own kooky styles in Minnesota basements during the cold months. So I read that you were in a band called Zuzu's Petals. Yes. Zuzu's Petals. I, um, I met these two girls from Madison, Wisconsin, who had recently moved to Minneapolis. Um, they were working at the global cafe on the West bank of the university of Minnesota, which was a really interesting place the west bank was this real hippie area of minneapolis kind of like a little bit lost in time you know what i mean like you saw a lot of casualties from the 60s wandering around who'd been living there for the whole time and um you know dylan played a lot of shows over there on the west bank and um willie murphy and it was uh, really this, and Kerner, Ray, and Glover, you know, the, the folk scene was centered around that area. Um, so there was this old hippie cafe, and Lori and Colleen, my two future bandmates, worked there along with uh, Mark Olson from the Jayhawks, um, who was, um, you know, great musician, not a great cook as anyone that would go into that uh, cafe would tell you. They would walk in, and if he was back behind the grill, they would walk out. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember one time, Colleen came with a plate of food. She came back to the kitchen, and she said to Mark, 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 they ordered you know, a ham and cheese omelet, not this, whatever the heck, you know, you know, a stack of pancakes or whatever. And he just turned around, looked at Colleen and said, they'll live Colleen, they'll live. <laughs> and uh, so that, yeah, that was the kind of cafe that it was. But um, I started working there and was just terrified of these two. Um, Cause they were like grizzled veterans of the uh, cafe scene, uh, restaurant workers. Um, and I was, brand new to sling and hash. So I was, I was in kind of like awe of these two women and, and just tried to stay out of their way. But, um, they, they kind of mentioned at one point that another woman who worked there was, was their drummer and that, that they had this band, Susie's pedals. So I said, Oh, I'm going to come and see you. Um, and I was, I was suitably impressed. They were the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. I think, um, they had this method of, of, it, it was intentional. I found out later. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think it was, I thought they just had kind of a crummy drummer, but they would speed up and slow down drastically huh. in a song. So they would be like, well, no, we feel that this is how the verse goes, but then we want the chorus to slow down 
you know, just like drastically. And I said, you guys made me absolutely seasick, but I, I loved it, you know? Um, and so I, I kind of offered up my services as a, embarrassingly, I said, Hey, if you guys ever need a conga player, (laughs) (laughs) they still tease me about that to this day. But, um, eventually the drummer quit the band. And so they asked me to join and we ended up hitting the road. Uh, well, we rehearsed like five, five times a week, uh, just, just relentlessly, uh, rehearsed and wrote and, um, we hit the road and started just, you know, getting a real, getting a real following locally. And, and, you know, I I don't know, I could tell there was something about the band that, that affected people. People would remember us, like us, were drawn to us. And um, uh, it turns out that, that I was, I was right. I mean, there, I, I believe they are two really, they were born songwriters. Um, and I really admire, I admire the, the tenacity that they both had because they actually learned their instruments while they were learning to write songs. They did not come from a musical background. So they learned from square one, how to play bass, how to play guitar. At the same time, they were just trying to get these ideas out, these songs. Whereas I actually did have a background at this point, I could definitely play. Um, And so I was just amazed at um, the effort that they put into it. And within a couple of years, we had a record deal with Twin Tone Records in Minneapolis um, slash Restless. I think we were actually really properly signed to restless records in LA and we put out two records and toured the States countless times and, uh, England a couple times. And, um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I, you know, I, I don't know if this is this, the timeline is right, but I was living in Boston after college in sort of late eighties. And I remember a band called Zuzu's pedals was playing in Boston, you know, and I remember just seeing the name and going, Oh my God, that's like the best band name I've ever heard. Um, but so were you guys like touring like Boston by then, or could this have been a different? Well, pedals? It could have been us or it could have been the Boston ZZ's pedals. Cause there was a band called ZZ's pedals in Boston. See, so probably was then it, it probably was bastards out there. I know. Well, trust me. Well, you guys got the record deal. We, yeah, we secured the name. We, we, we fought off all the imitators. There was one in uh, Richmond, Virginia as well. I think there was one in Canada, but we, uh, we put out um, our first single and, you know, it's all handwritten on the back of our, our single. And it's like copyright Zuzu's pedals. And then we said, the name is ours suckers. (laughs) <laughs> handwritten on the back it's just like nobody gets this name but us um but uh no we met a lot of the other Susie's pedals and they were all very nice people and very uh gracious about it so nice when yeah. did you leave uh minneapolis i left minneapolis in 95 um zuzu's broke up in early 95 we had you know, things were going well in some ways. Um, but 
um, like we had just done a whole national tour opening for Adam Ants and playing big theaters and, you know, just kind of, kind of getting some very cool opportunities, but it just kind of, I don't know, things were just getting tough. Um, people had, you know, we were all getting older and, uh, you know, and all, I was the youngest one in the band. So I think they were thinking about like, man, what am I doing with my life? I got to get out of the van and move on to some other stuff. So, um, the band dissolved and, um, I joined another band for a short while, but I kind of, I kind of felt the writing on the wall in my time in the city. I just kind of, I just felt like I needed to really throw the cards up in the air and see where they would fall. So I kind of very spontaneously made a decision to move to New York where my sister had been living for, I don't know, 20 years or something. Um, I called her up late one night and said, Hey, just broke up with my boyfriend. The band is finished. I'm in it, working a dead end job. How do you feel about having a roommate? And it was sort of like dead silence <laughs> for a second. Uh, um, but then she was like, yeah, are you serious? So, you know, um, I said, I'll call you tomorrow. I'll give you one day to, you know, opt out. Um, I called her the next day. I said, how do you feel today? She said, go for it. So I think I booked a ticket for like a week later and I wow. went with like a little duffel bag of clothes. My dad dropped me off at the airport and said, see you in six months, kid. And, um, you take your drums. No, I did not. I actually didn't want them. I didn't want to see them. I would, did not go there to play in bands or drum. Absolutely not. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I thought if there's any place in the world that you can go as an unskilled but tenacious person and somehow figure out something to do, it's probably New York. So, you know, I, I dropped out of college. So I, I, you know, I did not have a degree or any kind of really marketable skills of any kind. I thought, oh, I'll go out there. Maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe I'll, you know, all these things that require money. Um, and I just, I had no plan. But my sister was awesome. She let me stay with her and um, got me a job at the place she worked. She was an actress. Um, it, it still does some acting. And um, so she also, like me, kind of did these, these kind of, you know, maybe not career-driven jobs, right? Things that would get her by in order to put her effort and time into um, her, her theater Right. And so um, we were both just living that life of like going to going to work on the train and, and putting in hours at a fairly, you know, semi stupid job. And then at night going out and doing, you know, she would go rehearse her theater with her theater group. And I would go rehearse with. Uh, so I started getting calls the minute I landed. Weirdly, somebody had heard I was moving to town and. I think I got a call within the first week of me having landed. Um, hey, you don't know me, but 
I, you know, got your number from a friend who said you play drums and we really need a drummer. So suddenly I was like, I sort of rolled my eyes and I was like, really? Like tried to get out, but they're pulling you back in. Yeah. I was like, I was like, all right, I'll meet you. So we met, she handed off a cassette and she was so cool. Jill Richmond from the Aquanettas, um, which was a great LA band that I loved. Um, used to play them on my radio show. And uh, she was just so dang cool that I couldn't say no. And I ended up playing in a band with her, which then led to um, me getting to play for Steve Wynn, who came down to the show. And it was opening for Freedy Johnston. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so, and I was a big Freedy fan. So I got to talking to both of them, both who became lifelong friends um, and kind of started me off. Then, yeah, then I, I basically, Steve, at that point, kind of after my first gig with the Mean Reds, he said, so um, do you want to audition for my band? My drummer just, you know, can't do the next tour. You want to do it? And then, so that led to me playing with Steve. So originally was a, obviously a musical connection. Yes. Yes. And did you, did you know his music at that point? Were you like, Oh yeah, I love Definitely. Definitely. I was a huge fan, huge fan. Um, ever since, um, well, I knew the dreams. I knew the days of wine and roses. I knew that record, loved the record, but I really became a huge fan at the point of, uh, his first solo record, kerosene man. So I was working in a record store in 1990 and that came out and I really flipped out over his songwriting a lot. And, um, and Zuzu's pedals back when I was in Minneapolis, we actually opened for Steve Wynn and his quintet quartet, whatever it was at the time, his band, uh, in Hoboken, we were on tour and we got a slot opening, uh, for Steve. And that was, so I actually had met him prior to that um and and really got along great with him and everyone in his band so there was there was a friendly you know there was there was definitely like a friendly connection there we then they came and played minneapolis zuzus we all went down to see them we just we we all got along great with them so that was cool um but was there was there anything particular about your playing that he said he wanted you know to be playing with him no, I don't think he mentioned specifically, but he did have me send him a tape of some stuff. He was familiar with the stuff I had done in Zuzu's Pedals. But, you know, we were a very particular, specific, somewhat on the more naive side musically, you know what I mean? Um, that wouldn't have been enough for him to just sort of go like, hey, you would be perfect for my band, you know? So it wasn't until I sent him, I, I gave him a tape of a this band Fauna that I was in, um, who was doing something a bit more like on the modern edge of things. And, you know, the players were, it was a different, something a little bit more sonic and in his wheelhouse. And he heard that and he was like, oh, this, this I kind of can see, you know? And so, but he still, he wasn't just offering it up to me, you know, he was like 
come and audition, you know? Right. And so, and then he was like, you sing. Right. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I sing. Nah, I did not. hundred <laughs> percent had never sung and just said I did. And, uh, so the first time I actually sang and played drums at the same time was at the audition for him because I didn't have a rehearsal space. There was no way for me to rehearse it. So I just hoped for the best um, and found out it's really not that hard. So he was happy. He wasn't like, love the drumming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's still a work in progress. I am not like a confident singer. So I, I, I love doing it, but it's, you know, that's not my first thing. So I'm always up for the challenge, but nobody's, nobody's asking me to come join, you know, the Metropolitan Opera. Let's put it that way. Right. Although they could use a good drummer like you. Well, there you go. They can... But there you go. So, so when you started playing with him, was it immediately sort of clear that you had like this sort of musical compatibility? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess you can ask him that, but I, I, but I felt it. Yeah. And the other guys that he chose for the band, Rich Gilbert from Boston, uh, he was in the Zulus. Um, so I was from Zuzu's pedals. He was from the Zulus. Right. Um, uh, he went on to play with like Tanya Donnelly, um, and Jack White and, oh, he was in, uh, um, Frank Black and the Catholics was, that was, he was a long-term member of Frank Black and the Catholics. Great, great guitar player. So he was going to be joining, Steve put together an all new band. So it was Rich, me, and then Armistead Welford, who, um, was the bass player in Love Tractor from down in Athens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. So those records. Yeah. So we went on tour. I mean, we all kind of got together, played. It was like, okay, done deal. This is a band. And I think maybe we rehearsed for a week and then we played a show in New York. Second show was in LA. Third show was in Belgium at a big festival. And I was like, okay. I guess I'm playing music again. I guess I'm not going back to school. What did, was the music, did it feel different uh, from what you'd been doing? Cause you're not like, you know, speeding up and slowing down in the middle of songs and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly it was like, okay, time to step up. You know, I didn't feel out of my, at this point now I'd been playing long enough and been playing with enough different people where um, I guess I was happy to feel like I wasn't out of my element. You know what I mean? With these players who are more experienced than me. Um, so that was good. But I also knew that I had more of a responsibility um, to be on because these people actually had fans. Steve actually had, you know, a following and fans and people that came to see him and expected, you know, a lot from a show. So I, it changed my sort of discipline towards things, I think. At what point did you realize that there was more of a connection than just a musical connection there? Um, oh, I would say pretty early on. I would say pretty early on. Um, I think Armistead said to Steve at one point, you know who would make a cute couple? <laughs> uh, Steve told me that later. Uh, so yeah, it was sometime in that 
first, probably the after playing together for about six months, we started started dating, and then it became a thing of like, wow, do we date or be in the same band? It almost came down to can we do this? Can we date and be in the same band? Because it can get, you know, I'm pretty, we're both pretty stubborn in our own different ways. And, um, you know, it's, it's a thing when you're in a relationship and then together in a van and right. just 24 sets, you're never apart when you're on tour. And those tours we started doing, um, they went from the shortest we would ever go out for, like in Europe would be a month. And at one point we did a tour back-to-back tours of Europe and, and, and the U S and it was like five months together. And so, you know, um, it, it, it most, it almost always was easy and great. There were times when I had to learn to just zip it when it came to my opinion on musical stuff. You know, I have very strong opinions about music I have and and they're they come from a place of enthusiasm right but it's like oh I feel so strongly about this it's like it's an enthusiastic thing but you know it's like at a certain point it's like you got to understand that other people can feel the exact same way and it is going to possibly be a different outlook on that song you know so whatever I had to learn, I had to learn a lot. He had to learn a lot too on how to make that work. But, you know, really for the, for the like 99% of the time, it was just a pure joy to be able to go up and play music and spend all day together walking around a little town in Germany and go play more music again the next day. I mean, you guys have been together how long now? Uh, since 1996. So yeah, 26 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ever like, oh, Steve, that song sucks. Uh, no, once again, that whole zip it thing comes into <laughs> No, no, no. But also, um, I, I don't think he's ever presented me a song where I felt that as my reaction to it. So he, he's, a, he's a fantastic songwriter. He's amazing. He's, you know... Are, are, are some maybe of a higher level always you're going to have, you know, songs that you're, you know, are just like divinely given to you straight from the gods and which ones you had to grind out and maybe aren't, you know, it, there's, they, they vary, but his songs never suck. So. He seems to also take a really positive attitude toward what he's doing. He seems to really be into the process of it is sort of a discovery creativity sort of thing is again, as opposed to the, uh, I had to pull my hair out doing this one and it was so horrible. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. He's yeah. He goes to a very deep place for his, his, uh, when he's in songwriting mode, um, he doesn't write constantly. So it isn't like, Oh, every day, you know, everybody's got their own process. So he'll tend to go, I'm going into songwriting mode now. And then he will say like, you know, basically I'm leaving the house 
Um, he has to leave the house usually. So he'll go to this uh, Uruguayan bakery down the street from us. We live in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is one of the, it's the most diverse neighborhood in America. And uh, in America. And uh, <laughs> so we've got, we've, we've got, you know, just endless great places to go where you can sit and not understand what anyone is saying around you. So it kind of, you don't have to tune people out. It just becomes this beautiful backdrop of people, you know, syllables and people talking, but you can't understand them. So, um, he loves to go and just sit with his notebook and, and, um, kind of take in the stuff around him and just start writing. And, but yeah, so he, he will tend to spend a couple weeks doing that and then, you know, maybe revisit them later. But um, yeah, it's, that's more his style. I remember when you guys were in Chicago for, with a baseball project for the first time, which I guess was 2008, which I guess is 14 years ago, which I guess is kind of crazy. Everything, everything is like way, way longer ago than I think. But I remember that you and Steve were, were interested because you were staying like right around the corner from the Tribune, like the Tribune Tower yeah. um, and House of Blues and where you guys were staying were all pretty close to each other. And I think I recommended a Italian restaurant that you guys ate at twice. So I was pleased yeah. that that one worked oh, out. Oh yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and, uh, but, but you and Steve came up and I gave you a tour of the Tribune and I'm like, see it now while you can. And it's a condo building now. It's all, you know, the newsroom, everything's out of there. They got it all sold out from under them. But I remember, you know, thinking, oh, see, this is cool. Cause it's like, you guys are musicians, but you're also actually interested in this sort of thing and seeing where the, you know, how the newspaper comes out and where the offices are and everything else and seeing all the quotes on the historical lobby. And it just sort of showed a sort of engagement with the outside world that obviously was beyond, I need to be just working on this musical part all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Abs absolutely. Um, you know, there's music is, is a big part of our lives and yet it's also a small part of our lives. Um, obviously there's so much more going on out there to enjoy, but also to be, uh, wary of, <laughs> yep. to be aware of and, uh, engaged in. Um, yeah, no, we don't, we're not the kind of people that retreat into our music and use it as a bubble. You know, it's like, we don't, that's not really, how we walk through the world. So yeah, we're always, we're avid travelers. We love to go out and see how, uh, how other people live, you know? And, um, like for instance, I can, I can remember going to, uh, we were sort of gifted this wonderful vacation, you know, like in a, a vacation spot in like Puerto Vallarta, I think it was. And, um, you know, but it was a resort and we're, we think we can relax and sit on the beach and, you know, do that. We last about five minutes. It's like, yeah, we can't do it. And so, you know, the boots come go back on and we found a bus that would take us up into the hills. And, you know, it's like an area where it's not, you know, it's where people who live and work down in the touristy area that's where they live. So, you know, that was so much more fun. We were like, Oh, thank God. And we were up there and then we had some great 
food and walked around and you know what I mean? It's like, it's, uh, that's just, we can't help it. It's so living in this neighborhood is just the greatest because we can kind of like learn about, um, we, we just live in a little, a little mini world, um, where you can take a trip to a different country every day. Yeah. And we kind of, it's kind of ideal for us. So. Dress played with a lot of women in different bands, but, you know, obviously rock and roll has this reputation of being sort of a boys club and, and it's hard to get taken seriously if you're a woman. How much do you feel like you had to sort of butt up against that kind of attitude over the years? Um, I don't feel like I experienced a lot of that. I know that story is different for everybody for you know i've certainly heard other stories from from other women um for me i you know it was um th i think about this carefully because you know it, it's it's not a simple yes or no answer but basically i started playing with friends who didn't look sideways at, you know, it was like boy, men and, you know, boys and girls, we were boys and girls at that time. Um, we were kids, you know, 18, 19, 20. And we just, I came from a group of people who had a very specific aesthetic. So we were the kids that dressed in all sixties clothes and love sixties bands. And so we were already this little tiny microcosm. We were that faction in Minneapolis essentially. So, so we drew upon each other for the bands that we made. And so there wasn't a thing of like, Oh, you're a girl. Like the sixties bands that we were putting together, sixties influence bands that we were putting together, there were, girls, women playing, um, in them. Um, so it was, it was a nice mix. So, um, the first band I was in was with, you know, it was a trio. It was just with a couple of other guys, but then the next thing I did was, um, our singer was a woman. I think she played some guitar as well. And then I did another band for a short while and it was both women. Um, you know, then I did an all guy band. So I was kind of going back and forth seamlessly and none of the, none of the guys I was hanging out with, they were friends. So they were good guys who were not concerned about that kind of stuff, just if you could play. So, and then as, and then once Zuzu's pedals got going and we locally, not a problem with the males, like our, the, the most supportive bands in town were our friends that were in Soul Asylum and the Jayhawks and Run Westy Run. And so we were constantly opening shows for them and they were our really good friends. So there was no pushback there. It was only supportive. And I feel like the Minneapolis scene was very supportive of women in music. Um, women in Minnesota have a tendency to um, be... 
I, I don't know. I, I've done a lot of traveling. I will say, I think that women in Minnesota, strong women, it's encouraged. It's fine. It's accepted a lot more than maybe in certain other areas. It's a Scandinavian thing. I think somewhat this idea that like, oh, we're not we're not afraid of strong women, um, you know, athletic women, women who are, you know, um, leaders in business, things like that. I think there's just a very good supportive network um, in, in that area. Um, I'm, I'm sure it is in many other parts of the country too, but I, I also know that it isn't. Um, so I feel lucky to have come from that kind of um, background. However, when we did get going, and this kind of plays into that, when we did get out of state and start playing around, it wasn't always like that. So you would, show up and there might be you might be opening for some band that was just a bunch of doofy guys who um you know had neanderthal ideas and you might get treated very rudely by the sound guys um but you know i started to discover that sound guys can be rude to everyone <laughs> right that can that can happen so you know um but yeah yeah you know you but I, I always, I never let it really bother me too much. It, no, nobody was trying to actively get in my way, and I certainly um, wouldn't have let them anyway. So, yeah. And if people were making any sort of assumptions about you once they heard you playing, they'd be like, "Oh, never mind." Well, that's kind of what I always would wait for. It was like I. Y- it won't if you're rude to me before this evening starts or if you are dismissive, like I kind of know it'll be different at the end of the night. Um, so right. I'm not going to worry about it too much. It's like, uh, whatever. So how many bands are you playing in right now? Right now? Um, well, you know, actively playing in not that many at the moment due to the fact that you know, we've got we we've had some interruptions. I don't know if you're aware of what's been what? going world. What? What? Uh, yeah, exactly. I do um, play when called upon in a few bands like the Minus Five with Scott McCoy. Um, you know, but he's always depending on where the shows are. Um, he's nabbing who's convenient for the, you know what I mean? And, and in proximity. So, um, I'm not always, uh, getting to be a part of, of those shows, but, um, we did just finish recording, uh, a baseball project album. Right. I saw that yeah. down with Mitch Easter, right? That was Mitch Easter. So that was kind of a special gathering of people for, those people who don't know, um, Mitch Easter recorded the, uh, engineered and produced the first couple of, uh, REM records and baseball project has two and a half REM, three, three members of REM, two official members. And then Scott McCoy, who right. has been in the band for ever and ever. Um, so yeah, being able to sort of like reunite that team of people in North Carolina was super special. Yeah. I was thinking this must be the first album that uh, 
Peter Buck and Mike Mills, your your half of uh, REM from like the early '80s, right. uh, when they would have been recording with Mitch Easter. It's probably the first time. I, I I don't know, but I'm. Is this the first time they've recorded with them since Reckoning, which was their 1984 second album? I would, to the best of my knowledge, yes, this is the first time. So it was really, it was really exciting for me. You know, um, it was. Uh, he he mixed a good portion of the last baseball project record, um, and that was so much fun. Just just he was mixing it remotely, so we weren't like in the, you know in the same uh, place as him when all that was going on. But uh, I I just started thinking to myself like if there was any opportunity to do, you know, actually record with him and, and get down to North Carolina and do this, like I, I want it, you know what I mean? So I started sort of lobbying for it over the years. And I mean, it took forever for this. Uh, there was a long gap between the third baseball project record and the one that we just recorded. I'm going to say it was eight years. Yeah. 2014 was third. Mm, so, thank you. Thank you for you're, having you're, that information at your fingertips. Oh, you're welcome. I do my research, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like baseball. You got to come in with your stats. <laughs> I like it. I'm glad you did because I'm really bad at pulling updates, but, um, so, okay. And so my math was pretty much correct. Yours, you're definitely correct. That's, yeah. that's eight years. If it comes out this year, you know, well, we'll just have to see about that. We're, we're working on how we want to make it available. So so we'll, we'll see, Excellent. But, um, but yeah, so it was a, it was a long gap. So I had a long time to work on this concept and, uh, kind of get everyone on board for it. And man, I just couldn't be happier. I think we're all super excited. It was an experience of a lifetime for, for me. Are you, are you sort of an organizer in the band? Are you one who's sort of like trying to herd the cats? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I think we all take turns, you know, uh, swinging the lasso, um, depending on, you know, everybody's so busy as you can probably imagine, uh, Steve Wynn, Scott McCoy, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, myself, all doing, you know, all have lots of things going on. And, um, so sometimes one person has a little bit of a breather and they can kind of take the reins for a little while and kind of, you know, um, push things forward when they need to be or whatever. Um, and, and we just kind of take turns. We tag team. On right. The well, I remember yeah. the first time seeing you, I think it was at house of blues in Chicago and it was 2008 and, uh, and Peter Buck was your bassist for those first, uh, tours and a couple of records. And then at some point he was tied up with something. So then Mike Mills became the bassist and it was like, Oh, which REM guy is going to be the bassist now. But yeah. then last time I saw you, which would have been, I don't know, pre pandemic at Evanston space. Uh, it was both of them and, and Peter Buck was back on guitar and Mike Mills was on bass. Is that, are you guys just like fully like a five piece now? Well, you know, when we can be. So once again, it comes down to people's availability. Um, so, but, but more and more that has become, I, th I think everybody is, is pretty dedicated to the amount of fun that this brings. And so we all try to, 
you know, I think that everyone is trying to make sure they can be there for all the shows. Um, yeah, I, we did, uh, we had an amazing run of shows right before the pandemic, um, where we were, uh, asked to be the house band at the rock and roll hall of fame, right? which, uh, many of you know, is in Cleveland. And that was during the all-star baseball MLB all-star uh, game which was in Cleveland and so over the course of that week we were playing three shows a day at the uh, at the Hall of Fame and um, that was a lot of fun and and uh, you know do, getting the opportunity to play things like that it's like it's great to have the full the full band because it brings a lot when you know it's when we have all five members it's absolutely yeah and then you had the big interruption and now you have the album done and is the big, you know, comeback tour happening soon? <laughs> well, it could be kind of like, um, I don't know if you had Tommy John surgery, you know, sometimes you got to be out for a year while you recuperate. So I don't right. know, you know, and then you come back stronger though. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so no, we, I, I would imagine that the record is going to come out in the spring of 2023. So, so we're probably not looking at, you know, releasing this anytime, you know, before the end of the season, but you never know, maybe things are different these days. I like the fact that you can kind of just be more immediate and spontaneous and maybe we'll release a couple songs on Bandcamp or something just to give people, um, you know, something to talk about during the second half of the season. Right. Yeah, you got to be because it's a it's a it's a more seasonal band than most, you know, like if you're, you know, another band, you could sort of put out that November album. But like the baseball album, you're like, you know, if you come out September, you're right before the playoffs, uh, October, you know, there's a lot of focus on it. So, right. so, so, yeah, I, under, yeah. I understand that. But it would be great to hear some more uh, baseball project. And the other thing that people are doing now, too, is that there's such a lag in getting like vinyl pressed. If you guys are going vinyl yeah. um, that it's like, well, maybe you have the digital version come out, but then the vinyls like six months later. I don't know. That's that's sure definitely you know. in the works. Something, you know, we're, we're thinking about things like that, too. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll just make it available digitally first. Does it have a title aside from volume four? We're still working on all that too. The songs aren't even all completely mixed yet. So we're, we're in the final stages of that. And then we've just got on the, uh, the books with Greg Calby to master it. Oh, nice. The summer. Yeah. Always, always have to have Greg. And um, I mean, if you're going to do something, do it right. Right. Go I have, on. I have a title for you guys. Volume four. What the hell happened to the Cubs? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know. You specific. Tell me, you tell me. <laughs> oh, I, I can go on about that, but I won't. Um, and is the songwriting, uh, is it still mostly Steve and Scott doing stuff with like the occasional curveball thrown by Mike as uh, you know, Peter Buck, you know, and are you uh, writing stuff too? Um, no, I think you nailed it. It's, it, it was uh, pretty well split up between, um, between Steve and Scott. And then yes, Mike has a song on it. So just, just like the last one, Mike had a song on the last record right. on this. So yeah, same, same kind of yeah, deal. He had, his, and, he had his Dale Murphy one on the last one. And I remember him just him yeah. singing a song called stuff when you guys played. So I don't know if that's the uh, one. Yeah. Ah, see, there yeah. you go. All yeah. right. Yeah. Cool. Well, I look forward to hearing it. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really, it's great. I think it's sort of a, you know, they, they all have their own uh, personality and their own vibe, all these records. Um, and this one definitely is like, you know, I don't know if I would say a departure, that's not really exactly right, but um, it's definitely sort of like we've taken on more of a band vibe in the sense that we've all been playing together so much longer now, um, especially with that nine year break. We've right. done this band together and then I've had uh, just a ton of different projects with Scott and Peter that I do. Um, and so just, I think just the, the idea that, that we've been playing together so much longer now at this point that that when I heard this recording back, I was like, oh, I can, I hear a difference just in, in the, the way that we speak to each other musically and stuff like that. So. Now, does that have to do with sort of the styles you're playing, like more of a diversity or is it more just like maybe, you know, you're not sort of going right to each lyric and that you're taking a little more time as a band to play out the musical ideas. Uh, we never get the luxury of working out musical ideas. It's so on the fly. Um, I mean, truly, anytime I make records with any of these people, it's like, you, you know, be great or be gone. You know, <laughs> kind of, it's, it's like, you, you would be surprised how many times um, what you hear on a record is a first take. And, and that, that means like maybe never having heard the song before either. Like I had a, I had a um, sort of a, an idea on the second record that I didn't want to hear the songs before we recorded them. So hmm. I, I just sort of was like, no, 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 that's fine. You guys run through it in the other room with acoustic guitars. They would be in the kitchen kind of running through them. And I was like, just tell me, are there any stops? Is it just like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, a bridge, you know, just let me know if there's any big signposts. Otherwise let's just roll tape. And um, sometimes that will go better than half so basically I either prefer that sort of method, which is completely just you just re reacting to something completely spontaneously on the spot or having the opportunity to really work out parts in great detail and think about it and spend time with the song, the in between where you might've like rehearsed the song three or four or five times and gone through it. But that way, that's where I think I, I don't get the best result in a recording mm -hmm. studio is if I'm in that halfway place where I'm like starting to think about ideas, but they're not fully baked. Um, I would rather just have it be a, a first impression or, you know. Is the process the same, whether it's Steve's or Scott's songs? I mean, are they just like, here's the song, play along? Or, or does does one of them, you know, maybe sometimes say, look, I really want to hear you, you know, hitting the toms here or something like that? Well, you might you might get something like that from them. Um, but generally speaking, they will just let me go. They'll, they'll, they let all of us go and do what we want to do. If 
if someone really is missing something or is like, oh, I wasn't really thinking of it as being that kind of a rocking song. I was kind of thinking of it just being more like kind of a gentle, breezy thing, like, you know, pull it back, lady. (laughs) 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 You know, that's fine. Then, then, then they'll, they'll pipe up. But otherwise I would say the majority of the time, it's sort of like whatever you got going on is, going to be fine by me. I mean, you guys give the vibe of being a pretty happy band as opposed to like an angst ridden band. Is that, is that just a really good image you're putting out or are you actually a happy band? (laughs) I think we're a happy band. We're just happy when we can spend the time together. To be honest with you, we're all super good friends. And um, this is, it's a labor of love for sure. The band, but it's also just a good opportunity to get to hang out. A lot of times it's just like, let's book a tour. We haven't hung out in, you know, months and months. Like, um, and it's not always easy because we're living in different corners of the country. So. Yeah. Part of what's cool about it is, you know, you look up the baseball project and it says like on Wikipedia, super group featuring, and then it lists all you guys. <laughs> um, but there's something really awesome about seeing, you know, Steve Wynn and Scott McCoy and Peter Buck and Mike Mills and Linda Pittman playing, you know, in these clubs because they just want to, you know, and it's just like, you know, I've seen you in a variety of places, but n- none of them have been like these kind of imposing places where there's a distance. It's like, it's, a, it's an intimate, you feel like you're spending an intimate time with friends seeing you guys. And, and it's clearly sort of a love of playing together and also, you know, singing about baseball um, that brings you together as opposed to some sort of careerist statement thing that has to be made. Yeah, I don't think careerist statements are being made in any project we plan at this point, if that makes sense. It's um, it's really all at this point in our lives. I mean, I hesitate to speak for everybody in the band, but I do feel do feel like I, I am being accurate when I just say, you know, we're trying to make music that makes us happy, amused intrigued surprised like we're doing it for ourselves and our friends and for the fans that want to be along for whatever weird ride we're gonna take them on because we you know we're we're all doing very you know kind of fringe kind of music it's we're, we're not really in some ways this band is the most inside you know what i mean because we're appealing to perhaps a broader swath of people with this band, but definitely with our other projects, it's even more out there. Uh, Scott and Peter just did a, an improv. Uh, they backed Lonnie Holly, who's an amazing artist, visual artist and um, musician who never plays a song twice. He, he only goes on stage and just makes up songs on the spot. And um, so there was no rehearsal. They just, he came to town to Portland and they backed him. And then he made up his songs and, um, you know. Just the three of them? uh, You know, I'm not sure if there was anyone else on stage that night. I know, I know there were other people who took turns backing him when they were playing with him. I had the feeling it might've just been the two of them. Um, but you know what I mean? These are the kinds of fun projects. This is, this is our idea of, you know, you can see we're not being careerist. Um, 
Yeah. Right. It's not the big, but it's, but it's fun. And, and, and I mean, as oh, someone exactly. who loves baseball and even more loves, you know, catchy three to four minute rock songs, it's a really great combination of stuff. And, uh, you know, it just, I mean, just starting off with, you know, pastime from the first record, you're just like, Oh, this is like, so, so I'm trying to think of like the baseball, I was gonna say up my alley, but like, what's the baseball way to say that, you know, down the middle or whatever. <laughs> In the your fat, it's the, the fat gopher ball for me. I don't know. It's like, uh, it's, it's just fun. And, 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 and it's musicians that, you know, it's also like when you have like sort of friends from different, you know, like it'll, personally, you'll have like friends from different groups and then they all get along. You're like, Oh, and it's like, now it's musical people who you sort of know in different places. And they're like, Oh, everyone's together. And it's great vibe and fun. So during this interruption recently, how did you, uh, keep yourself in sort of playing shape? Cause you, cause I, I mean, I'm imagining you don't do, do you have a kit set up in your apartment or I have a V drum set. So that's an electronic drum set, which supposedly people can't hear on the outside, but yeah, you can, you're still hitting something physical. So, um, I do have that. I did not really use it. Um, I did, didn't touch drums for, um, quite a long time for, for a long time. Um, we started doing these shows at home in our living room, uh, on like Facebook. Oh yeah. We've got some nice salsa music cranking on the street now. Um, but, uh, so we started doing these shows just to like, just to try to cheer people up and cheer ourselves up. And, and, um, those ended up being a lot of fun. Um, I would just grab Steve started doing them solo. Then after a while I started just like grabbing things from the kitchen, um, like a salt shaker and using it as a, you know, maraca or, or grabbing, you know, Tupperware and playing that with my hands and kind of back to when I was four years old. Um, and then I started building it up. I had a couple things still at home here, like a snare drum and stuff. So I started building a little, a little tiny, you know, percussive kit here. And we, we would do those. Um, so we kind of did a weekly show like that for a while during the pandemic. And then at a certain point, pretty far in when it looked like, yeah, we're still going to be doing this for a while. We, um, took, we, we took our first like lift car. It was so scary and got a we took it down to our rehearsal space and, and set up and started doing a series of weekly shows called the impossible tour, which was, um, it's impossible to actually go to Rome and it's impossible to go to Cleveland, but, um, we're going to pretend like we're in these cities. So, right. And playing songs from those different places. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. So we would choose a cover song from the city that we were, playing from that week. Um, so we would do two shows a day on Sundays. So the first show would be in America, um, some U S city that we would choose. And then the second show we would do for our European fans so that it was like a more convenient hour for them. And we would choose a European city. That was one of our favorites. And we would pick an actual club and then the proceeds from, um, the show because we we had a um, we had a pay platform for these that you could 
do a sliding, you know, sliding fee on it. But any money we made went to those clubs that we were, because we were trying to help keep them going during the pandemic when they couldn't have live shows. Um, So it was really fun. We would be like, oh, does your club have like a signature drink or some, you know, something like that. And they would send us a recipe for their signature cocktail or favorite drink there. And I would uh, make a cocktail. Steve would tell stories about times that we had played at the club in the past. And then we would cover a song from the city. And um, so that was our impossible tour. And I think we did about 10 weeks of that, which kept us kind of in shape. That I think that sort of saved me from going completely insane. Yeah. Have you, have you actually played on a stage since then? Yes. Um, we did a show. I think our first show on a stage was last summer, last July. We flew out to Portland when the cases were really low last summer. Um, and we played a show, a very small just to like 50 people. We kept it small. Um, but Peter Buck, Scott McCoy, me and Steve did just sort of like songs from the minus five, the baseball project, Steve Wynn, and just did a couple of, actually it was a long night. We did a couple of sets and that was, that was a very strange feeling, um, to be back doing that together. Um, but then since then, Steve has done a lot. He's done a lot of, solo um solo shows outside so he started by doing a lot of that um but then he he did a couple of tours of europe last fall and into the winter um yeah yeah he definitely he got out there a lot more than me my first tour was in april of this year um um peter and scott and i were uh have a project with luke haynes um, who is a fantastic songwriter from uh, London, who his bands are uh, some people who are fans of the Britpop scene from the 90s would remember the auteurs and Black Box Recorder. Um, but he's a he's fantastic. So we did four or five shows in the UK with him in April. Well, I look forward to you getting back to some stage in Evanston, Chicago area um yeah. so i can't wait for the next uh the 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 new baseball project album volume four what the hell happened to the cubs <laughs> i don't know if you're gonna actually use that you can have it for free if you want but you might come up with something better i acknowledge under consideration mark <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that um i really appreciate you coming on and telling me all this this has been fantastic so it's, it's really great to talk to you it's it's been a pleasure thanks for having me mark that's a wrap on episode 42 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Linda Pittman for joining me and sharing so many excellent stories. You can follow Linda Pittman on Twitter at PitMonster, P-I-T-M-O-N-S-T-E-R. And you should seek out those first three baseball project albums on Yep Rock. They are volume one, Frozen Ropes and Dying Quails, volume two, High and Inside, and in the tradition of Big Star, third. Coming soon, the fourth Baseball Project album produced by Mitch Easter. And don't sleep on those two Filthy Friends albums either, Invitation and Emerald Valley. Here's hoping we'll get to see and hear her and these bands in person soon. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's a one-man supergroup. 
I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.